Chapter 9 of The Radio Beasts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Daryl Hansen. The Radio Beasts by Ralph Milne Farley. Chapter 9 the caves of Carr. Miles Cabot awoke in bed, presumably his own bed, feeling very comfortable and very tired. For a long time he lingered in that twilight zone which lies between dreamland and reality, dimly conscious of a nightmare series of events, and dimly reassured by the conviction that these events had merely been a nightmare after all and that everything was well with him and his loved ones. Then he slept once more, and when at last he woke again, it was with the clouded brain of high fever. Thus for many days he lay and tossed, and was ministered unto by tender hands, with no very clear realization of where or even who he might be. Occasionally he even imagined that he heard human voices speaking in a strange and alien tongue, which of course was impossible, for Cupians are the only humans on Poros, and they radiate instead of giving forth audible speech. Finally, after many days, his brain cleared, and he was able to take an interest in his surroundings. He was alone in a small cell hewn from the solid rock, but equipped with every modern convenience and lighted with electric vapor lamps. He called aloud, and the walls reverberated, but there came no answer. Of course not, for Cupians cannot perceive human speech. But if the inhabitants of these grottos were Cupians, then how about the spoken words which he was sure he had heard in his delirium? No one entered. Gradually his mind reconstructed the events which had brought him here, and he realized that he was in the caves of the famous lost river of Carr. No one had ever known that there were such caves, or that the planet Poros had any subterranean inhabitants. But there was a popular legend to the effect that the first man and first woman had arisen from the soil to populate the world although the more prevalent legend told that these two forerunners of the race had come from another land beyond the boiling seas. Perhaps the first legend was right, after all, and Cabot was now in the presence of the remnants of the prehistoric inhabitants of Poros. But, if so, then how explain the culture evidenced by the bed, the other furniture, and the electric lights? He gave it up, and lay back weakly, to await some further clue. Not long did he have to wait, for presently a venerable man entered the room. This man was unmistakably Cupian, for he had the antenna, the lack of ears, the rudimentary wings, and the six digits on each hand, which distinguished the human inhabitants of Poros from those of the planet Earth. He was clad, however, 
in a different style from that prevalent among the Cupians to whom Cabot was accustomed. For, in place of a toga reaching only to the knees, he wore a ground-sweeping gown of many folds, and instead of bare feet he wore sandals. On the front of his gown was a red triangle. His face had that calm, sweet majesty which one sees on the faces of many of the prelates of the Roman Catholic Church. Producing a pad of paper and a stylus, he wrote in Cupian characters the message, Good morning, Miles Cabot. I rejoice to see that you have thus far recovered. Cabot stared at the paper with surprise, and not a little horror. How do you know my name? he wrote in reply. Why not? the man countered. Miles Cabot is well known throughout all of Cupia. Then I am still in Cupia? Miles asked. You are, the man replied. To be more specific, you are in the caves of Carr. But write no more, for you are ill and weak. Lie down and rest. And he started to take away the pad, but Miles snatched it back and wrote, If then you know so much about the outside world, Tell me of the Princess Lilla. She is well and safe, the man replied. And my army? It is holding its own in the northern mountains. This time the old man retained the pad, thus leaving his patient speechless. Next he rang a soundless bell, and there entered one of the strangest creatures which Cabot had ever seen. In general appearance, it bore out the same relation to a Cupian as does a small gorilla to a human being on earth. Its head was prognathous and set deep on its shoulders. Its skin was hairless except on the top of its head and was the color of bluish slate. Its arms were long and gangling. It stood with a stoop and walked with a shuffle. Like the Cupians, it was earless, and had antennae, rudimentary wings, and six digits on each hand and foot. In the past, Cabot had occasionally heard of the legendary blue apes, which were sometimes said to be seen emerging from caves in the Okarzi Mountains. But never before had he seen one. Furthermore, the presence and general appearance of this beast afforded a rational explanation of the manner of Cabot's rescue from two aquatic boa constrictors on the ledge above the river in the subterranean darkness, and of his presence here. His rescuer had had four hands. So had this blue ape. In the manuscript which Miles Cabot shot from Venus to the earth in a streamlined projectile, and which was published to mankind under the title of the Radio Man, it was stated that the Cupians had no basis for any Darwinian theory. But now, Miles began to doubt that statement of his. Perhaps this was the true scientific basis of the legend of the subterranean origin of mankind. Perhaps the Cupians were descended from the blue apes of the caves of Carr. This particular ape appeared to be a slave or servant of the old man, for, at an inaudible command of the latter, he brought a basin of warm water, 
with which the old man tenderly bathed his guest. Then, still wondering where he was and why, Cabot dropped off to sleep again. When he reawoke, the old man was sitting in the room, and with him was a younger man, of the same general appearance and garb. The older handed over the following message. Miles Cabot, this is Nan Nan, one of our electricians. He is at your service. At once Cabot caught the drift of these remarks and wrote back, Bring me my apparatus and let us try to repair it. His two hosts glanced significantly at each other, and Miles began to fear that his radio set had been lost beneath the waves of the river car. But no, for an ape slave came bringing it, together with a bench and tools which they placed beside the couch. Then the electrician and Miles set to work. It took a long time, several sanctths, in fact, for the earthman was very weak and all conversation had to be carried on in writing. The present occasion reminded Miles of those days at the Ant University at Mooney, shortly after his arrival on the planet Venus, when he had struggled for many weary thanks to produce artificial antenna and a portable radio set in order to see if this would not furnish a means for oral communication with the lovely Lilla, Princess Royal of the Cupians, whom he then worshipped from afar. Before he had completed that experiment, he had had no means of knowing whether or not the beings of this strange planet used radio waves to talk with. Their own scientists, both Cupian and Formian, had doubted it decidedly. But the Earthman had persisted, basing his hopes on the speculations of some American savants which he had read shortly before his departure from the earth, to the effect that insects communicate with each other by means of exceedingly short Hertzian waves. In those hectic days at Mooney, he had had, as his laboratory assistant, the youthful Prince Toron, then a slave to the Formians. Now he had another youthful Cupian, though evidently of some strange tribe. Now, as then, all conversation had to be carried on by means of pad and stylus. But on the present occasion, there were several advantages over Mooney. In the first place, his work was not interrupted by frequent exhibitings of himself to classes of students as a horrible example of what nature can do in an off moment. In the second place, he was now thoroughly familiar with Peruvian tools and electrical symbology and equipment, and in the third place he was now merely duplicating an apparatus thoroughly tested and understood. But offsetting these present advantages was the fact that he was very weak and nervous as the result of his trying experiences during his long journey northward from Kuana to the Caves of Kar, where he now was. The Venerable Gentleman whose name turned out to be Glamp-Glamp, hovered constantly around, administering to the bodily needs of his guest, and taking very good care not to let him work long enough at a stretch, so as to overtax himself. Finally, the apparatus was fully repaired, 
and two more Cupians knew the jealously guarded secret of this means of communication. Cabot's first spoken words were, Tell me more about my princess. Of course, Glamclamp had already given him in writing, from time to time, a general outline of the happenings at Luno Castle. But the completion of Cabot's artificial speech organs furnished the first real opportunity for an extended story. The following are the events as narrated by the venerable old man. Shortly after the news of the birth of your son, the little Prince Q had been broadcast from the Luno wireless station. A radiogram was received announcing the assassination of your father-in-law, King Q the Twelfth, in the Kuwana Stadium. Princess Lilla was, of course, prostrated by the news and was in no condition to rise to the situation and assume charge of the affairs of the nation. But fortunately, there was, among the attending physicians, a military man named Amsel, who, though primarily a veterinarian, was present to represent the army. You remember Emsel, don't you? Yes, replied Cabot. He tended my pet buntlow, Tabby, the time she died. He was just about to arrive at Lake Luno when I left for the fatal peace day exercises in the stadium. But go on with the story. As I was saying, continued Glamplamp, Emsel, by virtue of his military title, merely a barputa, mused Miles aloud, took command in the name of the infant king and proclaimed a state of siege. No boats were permitted on the face of the lake except those emanating from one certain landing place at which a guard was posted to make careful examinations of all wishing to pass or repass. Notices were put up in the nearby towns calling on the inhabitants to rally to the banner of Little King Q. The appeal met with practically a unanimous response. For you are very popular with the hillfolk, O Miles Cabot, with the result that Emsel was able to garrison the towns, to man Luno Castle, and to throw a strong cordon around the lake. Toward the close of the day of the assassination, Word came that the traitor, Prince Yuri, supported by his black hordes from beyond the pale, was in full control of the capital. But from that time on, no further news arrived at Luno. I think I know why, interjected the Earthman, for on my way up here, I found the apparatus in one of the radio relay stations totally wrecked. The old man went on. The first sign of the forces of Yuri was the arrival of a fleet of airships from the south early in the morning two days later. Some of the ships flew yellow pennants and some black, the flags of Yuri and his ant allies. What delayed this fleet is a mystery. For assuming that they left Kuwana, shortly after the assassination. They ought by rights to have reached Luno that evening. 
instead of a day and a half later. But, whatever the cause of this delay, it was indeed most fortunate, for it gave Emsel sufficient time to consolidate the country around your castle in behalf of your son. Another fortunate occurrence was the presence nearby of an anti-aircraft gun. This part of the Okarzi Mountains had recently been the scene of numerous and frequent attacks by huge whistling bees on the green cows of the farmers, and accordingly an anti-aircraft gun, mounted on a kirkul, had been dispatched from Kuwana only about a sankt before, for the purpose of combating these predatory creatures and putting a stop to the bovicides. One of Emsil's first official acts had been to requisition this engine of destruction and to station it on the southern shore of the lake. Yuri and his naval officers evidently were unaware of this, for the planes flew in bombing formation straight at Luno Castle, so low as almost to be within rifle shot. But just as they topped the edge of the lake, the trained gun crew let loose at them. Three are now sunk in the lake. One was shot down on shore and captured, and the rest beat a hasty retreat toward Kuana. But where was Poblath, the philosopher, all this while? interrupted Miles. Give him time, replied Glamclam. Give him time. It is a thousand stads from Kuana to Luno. Four full days' travel by Kirkul. By going night and day, Poblath with the jail Kirkuls made it in a little over two days. Arriving late at night, on the same day as that of the repulse of the attack of Yuri's planes. The arrival of these newcomers was the first intimation that those at the lake had had that any opposition was being made to Yuri's control. The news greatly heartened your forces, and they accordingly determined to hold out to the utmost. After the mango and his men had rested, Poblath assumed command by virtue of his rank, designating Emsel as chief of staff in recognition of his services. The former's philosophical wit did much to put every one in good humor and even relieve the princess of some of her anxiety. And you may be sure that Bethu, Poblath's wife, who was in attendance on the princess, was glad to see her husband. Two days later, the vanguard of Yuri's forces arrived by Kirkul, at a point several stads south of the lake, but were repulsed. Nevertheless, as reinforcements kept coming up, Yuri's army finally numbered about the same as the loyal mountaineers. Both sides thereupon dug in and waited. But what of the Formian Air Navy? asked Cabot. It was being kept busy, suppressing your supporters 
in other parts of the kingdom, was the reply. Besides, they doubtless feared the anti-aircraft gun. Thus, matters remained at a deadlock until forty days after the assassination, by which time the ant forces had become sufficiently augmented to dare launch a general attack. But, just as this was in progress, the army of Bhutedin, which all this time had been marching north from Kuwana, arrived with thousands of recruits, which they had gathered on the way, and attacked the Formians in the rear. Needless to state, the entire ant force was wiped out. Something to be thankful for, interjected Miles with a grin. The old man continued. But Bhutetan scarcely had time to communicate to the castle. The disheartening news of your death at the Kuwana barricade forty days before, when an overwhelming force of Formians and renegade Cupians, led by Yuri and the Black Queen in person, fell upon him in turn. Accompanying this force was a large detachment of the Air Navy. It was too much. Gradually, the Q army was forced northward, up to Lake Luno, past Lake Luno, into the woods beyond, into the very mountains under which we now sit in these caves. Yuri then besieged Luno Castle, for the Princess Lilla and the baby king had had no opportunity to leave it during the battle. Under threat of airplane bombardment, the defenders finally surrendered on the strength of Yuri's solemn promise to harm no person, to take only Lilla back to Kuwana, to maintain her there as befitted her royal rank, and to permit all other free passage to join your army for the sake of the infant king. And on Poblas' advice, the princess consented. So Yuri sent a strong detachment over by boat to carry out his promise. Did he carry out his promise? asked the Earthman. He did, replied his host with a peculiar gleam in his eye. Then who killed my baby? exclaimed Cabot. End of chapter 9